0: Welcome back to Get a Little Lit, the literary compliment podcast where we discuss things that are literary adjacent that might not have made their way into a full episode, but are definitely worth mentioning nonetheless. I'm your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host,
1: John Stricker.
0: And of course, we are in September. We are in the start of the school year. So what better way to introduce the concepts of learning than to look at early grammar primers? John, I know this is your very favorite topic, and I'm so glad that we get to bring it to you this month.
1: If you make me diagram a sentence on this podcast, I will be very sad.
0: Well, That's a shame because that's actually where we're starting. So go ahead and grab a paper, grab some pencils, and let's go to town. Just kidding. No, but we are excited to discuss the role of grammar primers and their huge influence on the scope of education. Obviously, as an educator myself, there are all different kinds of learning materials and resources that I have used and created over the years. And it's kind of interesting to trace things back to where they all began. So we will be going all the way back to learn a little bit about early education and the books that came along with them to hopefully prime you all to feel a little bit more knowledgeable on the subject.
1: I see what you did there, Stephanie, and I'm here for it. Wonderful.
0: So let's go ahead and take things all the way back. Grammar, spelling, and reader primers in the colonies were really intended to serve as an introduction, specifically for religious responsibility of children during the Puritan Age. The Puritan Age, of course, is a time where children should barely be seen and definitely not heard. So the idea that this might occupy young minds was likely something that was very helpful, because these primers codified religious creeds through their spelling and grammar instruction. So you're getting a religious education, and an instruction and in education on how to spell things. And as you put it, diagram sentences.
1: Is grammar at this time pretty uniform? Or is there still a wide, like, so you it, once it's put down and sent, like it, it's it's an attempt to be uniform. It's the same idea of a dictionary where you try and make the definition of words uniform across a language. So I wonder if the the grammar primers are a way of of staying close to to English culture, honestly.
0: So it's kind of funny that you say that, John. During this time, grammar means something very different than it does today. Grammar exclusively refers to the study of the Greek and Latin kind of origins of language, as opposed to sentence structures we understand it today. So grammar at this time would have looked very different than it does as how we would see it. So whereas we might be looking at, you know, how you would put a subject and and verb together back during this time. It might be looking at some of the biblical origins of things like the Greek and Latin that might've been used to understand the Bible.
1: That's interesting. It almost feels like it may have forked off into classics and grammar being two separate studies.
0: Yeah, that definitely. But regardless, it kind of all funnels under the religious education sort of area. So colonists believe that reading instruction is really just necessary in getting a proper religious education. Everyone has to be able to read at least parts of the Bible, right? We don't necessarily want you to be able to interpret it, but we certainly want you to be able to read your commandments. So regardless of their class and profession, there was some egalitarian value in that kind of education.
1: And that really stems from that Protestant tradition, whereas like a a Catholic tradition or, or even like the Church of England, literacy isn't as important because you have a hierarchy to determine the meaning of the religious texts, whereas the Protestant movement is, is pretty radical, saying, here, reader, make sense of these words yourself. So it makes sense that, you know, individual education and literacy becomes very important when you are giving people the task of interpreting the religious text.
0: Right. And that definitely was not necessarily included in a colonial education. This is sort of the advent of the one room schoolhouse situation. Most of the learning during this time is focused on memorization and oral performance, of course, because you have very few resources that might help accommodate otherwise. So before blackboards and slates, especially on like the personal level, you needed to really memorize things and be able to recite them. So children wouldn't spend very much time in formal schools schooling, right? Of course, they'd be able to learn these basics. But kind of after that, you were launched into an apprenticeship, some other kind of profession, or more likely whatever your parents decided you were going to do. So even by the year 1800, the average child spends less than 90 days in a classroom over the course of their entire lifetime. To give you some perspective, I believe 180 days is the standard expectation in the state of Illinois. So children are getting almost half of that year of education for their entire life.
1: That's incredible. And I do think it puts religious attendance in a new light when if that's the only time you're able to engage with a written text, there's a whole level of importance that a religious service brings that you don't get that through any other secular means. So I can see where this little bit of grammar and literature really does connect you long term to your religion.
0: Yeah, I think that the idea of the long term is a key one to hit on. Most of the schooling at this time is designed to help future studies. So we're going to teach you these basic skills so you can take them and apply them later in your life. Once you kind of learn them, you're good, you're on your own. But prior to this time, you know, those were really the foci of, of the education. So they're early, if we're talking about early reading materials, we're looking at the primer specifically first. The primer is this reference to an early textbook. It can either be a speller, a reader, or focused on grammar, these kind of individual things, and they get shuffled around. But again, they're these very rudimentary and foundational texts. They combined and contain fundamental religious materials, but then they also include things like introductory alphabets and spelling exercises, although those aren't going to appear until the mid-16th century. And it was actually Henry VIII who winds up requesting these for the purposes of religious education, which I think is kind of cool.
1: So it's interesting that this is done by Henry VIII, right? Because what has he done? He's separated himself from the Catholic Church. So all of a sudden, the oral traditions and the things that have tied you to a church for a long period of time, he needs to make very clear his claim in a legitimate matter among the populace. So the only way to go about that is to re-educate people in a way to accept his literal divorce from the Catholic Church. So it's really fascinating that he weaponizes reading and learning in this way
0: right? What better way to kind of encourage like a new cultural thing than open up what typically might not have been accessible for the average person. Now, if you leave that Catholic church, you can learn to read, you can learn all of these different things. And that's part of my church tradition. Again, not necessarily because he wanted it, but rather, what might help radicalize a group of people to support his decision. So I think that's a really interesting point to make about (laughs) early education access.
1: Yeah, literally give people the tools to be on my side.
0: Right. Even though he's the king and can kind of do whatever <laughs> he wants anyway. So the other option that we have, we've got a primer and we also have a hornbook. So these are the most widely used texts in the early colonial period. A hornbook is a thin wooden tablet, only about four or five inches wide. So if you think about that, maybe about the size of your smartphone, if you turn it on its side, that sort of size. I have a mini, so mine's a bit smaller than that, but... (laughs) It's a single sheet of paper that would contain the alphabet, simple syllables, the Lord's Prayer, that kind of thing. And it's covered by a semi-transparent horn to protect the paper, right? Children, unfortunately, don't necessarily have the same value of cleanliness as their adult counterparts do. So it was designed to kind of be something that children could use without damaging. So think like lamination, early lamination. And every student that attended school would have one of these designed to fit in their shirt pocket so they could carry them about. Again, an early iPhone, I'm just saying. So, Beginning in the 18th century, the dominant reading text in the colonies was called the New England Primer. These come out of Boston in the late 1680s. But by the time we hit 1830, there are an estimated six to eight million copies printed. So kind of takes over and monopolizes everything. Most of the versions of this begin with some Kind of alphabet, and then various words organized by syllable count, which I think is sort of interesting, along with rhymes and rhyme schemes that get more and more difficult, right? Toward a different section, they contain the catechism, different prayers. So it's really meant to kind of be something that lasts students through several series of lessons, which again is significant when you do not have access to new primers all the time.
1: Were these primers usually self-directed, or is this done at the behest of a teacher?
0: So that's also a great question, because as we understand schooling at this time, depending on if you were in an urban or rural setting, your skills and experience with a teacher could vary widely. In rural schools, you're getting students who've often just completed their education. So think young women at the age of 16, running a schoolhouse for themselves and taking care of everyone who is just younger and less experienced than them, all the way to, you know, young men through their 20s. So it sort of depends on where you were. If you were in a wealthier, or affluent area, your educational access might look different with specialized schooling programs. And all of those exist for folks that have access to wealth. So really depends on that. But if you're in a single one room schoolhouse, you need to have materials that anyone can kind of start and pick up. So if I've got a student who's reading at a second grade reading level, maybe they're starting earlier in the book. If I have an older student, I can put them further along in the text, and they'll be able to access a more challenging curriculum.
1: It almost sounds like that adaptability is a major benefit of these primers that they can be one thing for a set of people and another thing for a different set of people in a different context.
0: Right. So most readers up until the late 1800s are really focusing on effective oral reading, aka elocution, at more advanced levels. So we really want um, well-spoken individuals during this time. After that, though, we get some of the first texts that teach and focus on spelling. So, John, this might be particularly interesting to you to listen to, because I know that spelling isn't necessarily your strong suit. But one of the early texts that we have is Thomas Dilworth's A New Guide to the English Tongue. This is going to be your birthday present, and it was published in (laughs) England in 1740 and imported to the United States. It begins its own printing in the colonies in 1747, and runs for at least 76 editions before 1801. So incredibly long-lasting, incredibly popular primer here. It's used to teach grammar and spelling up to the mid-1800s and contains various vocabulary lists that are organized again by number of syllables and number of letters. So again, you can get more advanced. Although it does contain treaties on grammar and things like that, there are different reading passages and selections that are included and a lot of them tend to be moral in nature in addition to including the prayers, but we also have the introduction of fables. So these ones start to kind of broaden their scope a little bit, but really focusing on that grammar and spelling component.
1: It's interesting that it expands maybe beyond the religious now, but at the same time, the reading selections for children had to have some type of moral element to them. So a fable is still a highly moralistic story and it's, it seems that education is almost about codifying right and wrong as much as it is giving you the tools to be a literate person.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think about how much of the media that our young people consume today also tends to be moralistic in nature. I think our expansion and understanding of those things is different. But you know, ultimately, a lot of children's books end with the main character learning some kind of lesson. Again, I think our lessons have expanded and become a lot more inclusive and compelling. But it you know, I don't think that that's far off from what we still have in our in our young literature today.
1: I agree. And it's so interesting that there is a transition from codified right and wrong to just an exploration of different ways to be in the world. And I, I wonder, I wonder what the line is between what is appropriate for a child in the way that we think even today being moralistic versus just an exploration of a way to be in the world. Uh, that that might not be in a a moral positive way. So yeah, what is appropriate for a child to, to use to learn to be literate doesn't always have to contain that moral kernel.
0: Well, someone's gonna seek to answer this. And his name is Noah Webster of dictionary
1: fame. How prescient of me.
0: Great. So, (laughs) Noah Webster appears in the instructional text publication scene in 1783 and publishes a Grammatical Institute of the English Language, Part 1 quite an exciting title. And this is one of 59 different spellers that's published in the colonies through the year 1800. Most of them are single edition, so we don't have them coming out in a series, but they just kind of get published. Webster, however, changes some of this. He focuses on spelling, which makes sense for a dictionary man. And his becomes the best-selling American reading text by 1790 and stays in the top spot for almost 50 years. It replaces is the New England Primer and Dilworth's The English Tongue Book. Webster borrows various parts from Dilworth but he makes different improvements to spelling syllable divisions pronunciation, that kind of thing and replaces the religious content with sort of more generic morality passages which is kind of cool And then he actually just takes grammar out completely that's reserved for part two which I know you're super waiting for. And then there's also a part three component that's specifically a reader but neither of these part two or part three because Come as popular as this initial part one, which is focused again on spelling.
1: These books are primarily used to teach spelling versus one of the other activities that Webster's a part of to try and codify spelling. But it sort of makes sense that the same person would be interested in codifying the language and how things are spelled, as well as then disseminate the information on the cohesive system that they have developed. So I'm starting to see a vertical monopoly here, Stephanie.
0: Well, I mean, kind of back to your Henry VIII connection. Why not teach kids how to spell and then sell them the definitive thing that teaches them how to spell? Right. Not only kids, are you going to learn how to spell these words correctly, but I'm also going to provide you the dictionary that you can buy that'll tell you exactly how to spell all of these words. So I think that's a good point to to sort of indicate there, too. So by 1830 or so, school books represent about one third of all books printed in the United States. Again, literacy is expanding, but the average person doesn't necessarily have their own personal library or collection. And so schools have a really big part to play in where books start to kind of solidify themselves. So as public schools expand, students spend more time at school, and different types of readers we start to see, they get diversified, and they start to challenge Webster's monopoly. So don't worry, the vertical monopoly will soon be shaken. (laughs) And Lindley Murray publishes The English Reader in 1799. Initially, it isn't supposed to be a series, but it becomes very popular very quickly. And so he publishes the sequel to The English Reader in 1801, and then Introduction to the English. Reader in 1805. Honestly, all of those sound thrilling, and I can't wait for the next installment.
1: As long as they're giving Webster a run for their money, I'm sort of in for it. Bring on some new titles.
0: Great. Well, I have more for you. So after this, the most popular one to come about, or the newest title that you can embrace in your series, is the McGuffey Eclectic Reader. These series of books is incredibly significant and most popular during the 19th century. They're published by Winthrop B. Smith, who saw the need for a very, I guess, scaffolded and expanded series of readers, specifically in the West and in the South, right? Of course, the intellectual culture is dominated by the East Coast and kind of where our colonists have settled. But of course, there are people who are settling in the West and in the South that need this too. So he asks Gitlit alumni Harriet Beecher Stowe to help him but she declines. She however recommends a Presbyterian preacher and faculty member of Miami University whose name is McGuffey, hence the name and title of the book itself. So McGuffey is tasked with compiling the reader. And then the first two editions are to be age appropriate for the youngest possible students. Those get published in 1836. So he comes out with all of these things designed for a younger audience. And again, the idea that we might scaffold them up and expand the access and range of a singular series of books.
1: I think it's interesting because while this episode is primarily based on the primer books themselves, the whole idea of education is sort of shifting under the same kind of direction that the primers themselves are moving. So the idea that you address the student where they're at and then scaffold them as they get older rather than just present all of the information all at once and you just try and, you know, get it into their head at whatever age they are. I mean, that's that's a, that's a change in in educational philosophy.
0: Yeah, I think I really did enjoy my educational philosophy and history courses that I wound up taking in school just because the evolution of uh, education in the United States is so fascinating. It's so deeply political and so kind of based in things that I think an idealistic younger teacher in myself might have been shocked by. But knowing kind of the the dominant culture that we have and the influence that these things exert on our education system, it makes a lot more sense when looking at it from this historical perspective. So right after this is published, a man named Samuel Worcester publishes his own reader. And he sues McGuffey and Smith for various copyright violations, citing 10 different pieces in the McGuffey reader that are featured in his work, which has already occurred. The lawsuit inspires a sweeping series of revisions along with assorted redactions, which I think is kind of interesting. And the conflict gets settled out of court for about two grand during the time, which is about $66,000 in today's dollars. And so this intensifies the rivalry between the New England, aka McGuffey reader and the Bostonian, aka the Worcester publishers in the growing market over school books. So, after this initial publication, up until about 1920, an estimated 120 million copies of these texts are sold, including four sequels that get published between 1837 and 1863. These also incorporate extensive illustrations, which I think is pretty remarkable. The idea that these kind of poor young people might be subjected to no pictures or fun drawings and illustrations makes me very upset. I think there's a lot you can learn from learning to read images. And so I think this is very good that they started to put pictures into these texts for young people.
1: It was the start of the apex of literature that has become memes, Stephanie.
0: I guess when you say it like that... (laughs) Maybe we'll post some, we'll find some of these early illustrations and we'll turn them into our own series of memes. So these illustrations help to expand the curriculum to really become a more all-inclusive work, including spelling, speech, comprehension, and word studies. The grade level is also able to become more difficult, and then they're able to tailor instructions to various levels of experience with a lot of detail. There are introductory essays at the beginning of these texts that I find particularly interesting. They're designed to be used and read by teachers. And so I thought we would read this kind of excerpt from one. So it reads as follows, quote, Great pains have been taken to select lessons in which the language is simple, and the subject's interesting and natural to childhood, as we've learned from actual experience, that a child's progress is more rapid when the subjects are agreeable, and he can understand them in terms in which they are conveyed, end quote. So this is a very early discovery that children are more apt to learn things that they care
1: about. Shocking, Stephanie.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. In a a stunning twist of events, people that care about things will probably put more effort into them. So that's kind of weird that my students aren't interested in our etymology studies right now. I think that's a totally accessible thing for freshmen in high school to be looking at.
1: I think so. You're studying bugs?
0: Perfect. Yep, they love the pictures. So (laughs) after the Civil War, schoolbooks really start to resemble the modern textbook as they keep going on, including being very secular in their publication. They also serve as holistic compilations of grammar, reading, spelling, and those are taught more extensively through essays and short stories. So rather than isolating them into individual worksheets and lessons, they're now incorporated into more inclusive essays and short stories that students study along the way. So next time you take a look at your child's textbook, or if you have a young person in your life that's in school right now, maybe take a look and see what similarities it has to some of our early textbooks on. But I, I think it is really interesting to sort of see how things exist. I have several different types of primers that I've acquired over time. And reading the lessons is a lot of fun. So maybe in the coming days, we'll post some excerpts and you can learn along with, you know, the children of the 1800s, and see how well you can can do So it's no longer are you smarter than a fifth grader, but can you keep up with a kid from 1698? And we'll see what happens on that next popular show.
1: So that is your primer to grammar primers. Thank you for that, Stephanie. It's definitely more all ranging than I thought it was going to be. And I didn't have to diagram a single sentence. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with the direction that this episode went. Excellent. We will be
0: providing as bonus content, a spelling test that John will need to complete, including words from these time periods. So do stay tuned for that video and we can have some fun with that. But we hope that you enjoyed this and have a new deeper appreciation for the evolution of the textbook, a sentence many of you maybe have never thought you'd, you'd actually say. But until we see and hear from you next, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it a little lit.